Louis said, what's that sitting in the corner? And I explained to him that the, it was the Viber Hog. And so Louis said, can you play it? And I said, yeah. I never played it before <laughs> in my life. Big band jazz great Lionel Hampton. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. When you begin to list the greatest American jazz percussionists of all time, near the top of that list has to be the famous vibra-harpist and drummer Lionel Hampton. In a career that began in the 1920s when he was still just a teenager, Lionel Hampton rose to prominence in the jazz community, playing alongside names like Louis Armstrong and Benny Goodman. Later, Hampton became a band leader himself. He wrote a memoir in 1989, and that's when I met him. So here now, from 1989... The great Lionel Hampton. They're talking about doing a picture now. Really? Yes. Wow. Based on your book? Yeah, based on the book. I wouldn't. I wouldn't play no part in. They have actors to do that. <laughs> wouldn't? Well, you know, I. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about a movie, and I, it occurred to me: Would you want to play your father? <laughs> My father. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's good, isn't it? I mean, because it, it occurred to me. I mean, I was reading here when you when you first met your father. Mm-hmm. That you, you you were struck by how much he looked like you. Yeah, yeah now, right. As we sit here today, are you your father? I mean, do what? Am I looking at your father? Yes, because my my father and I look just alike. Well, see, you could play your father in the movie. <laughs> no, I'd rather get some actors. <laughs> <laughs> why did Why did you write this book? Well, I wrote this book because. Uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of things happening, and they, they were slipping away from me. And, I, and why they was fresh in my mind, well, some of them slipped away, but the, where those was left in my mind, I thought it was about time to put it in paper. You know, so many autobiographies, they'll just turn into one long, rambling, oh, I remember back in 29 we did this, mm-hmm. and then in 51 we did this. But yours is different. Yours, yours there, there's, it, it really tells a story. Well, well you, you, you tell a, a story because it's interesting to you, you know, and, and, and so naturally you reflect and you make it interesting to the people. I have to confess, I was a little naive when I first opened your book. I hadn't, I didn't know much about you. As you said, it's the first book that's ever been written about you, and I didn't know much. And I, I have to confess, I was, I guess, half expecting to read the story of a young man who, was, who got into music as a way of bailing himself out of poverty, as a, a young man who came from a broken home and turned to music. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's not the case at all. No. Uh, um, I came from a, a good living family. Uh, my grandmother was the head of our family. You know, I came from the South, Birmingham, Alabama, where the grandmother is the is the muncho. <laughs> she, she rules the thing, and which is good because she had been through that before, and she knows the, how to advise you right, advise you good, you know. And uh, so my grandmother thought it was time to leave the South, and for my brother and I to have education up north, and so she picked out my uncle. Uh, her son, and uh, had him to go to uh, Chicago to uh, get um, uh, a place for us to live, you understand, because she had money left from the pension of my grandfather. My grandfather was a fireman on the railroad, and uh, he, he could we could travel free of charge because that's the courtesy that they gave, gave those firemen, uh, those, those black firemen in those days. And uh, so we, when he we went to Chicago, he stayed a little longer than my grandmother uh, thought he should be, and uh, 
and uh, but fortunate enough he, he showed up uh, about after three weeks and uh, he said I got everything all set <laughs> he had everything all set he said I got an apartment for you he had got there and, and some hooker crook had, had fell in with uh, Al Capone <laughs> Not, who would have guessed that, no this was very unusual wasn't it <laughs> and then uh, and we, we we lived good you know you know, and uh, that's the way the story went. <laughs> now, I was surprised. I learned something. I was surprised to read that you say that Al Capone really was responsible for the success of many black musicians in those days. He was. Uh, his, his places that he frequented or the places he had interest in or his buddies had interest in, uh, well, he would have them the, the high black musicians, such as Earl Hines was one of his favorites, and uh, uh, Louis Armstrong. Jerry Old Moden, uh, uh, take uh, um, so many others. Uh, Alberta Hunter, she was mm-hmm. a famous girl singer in those days, and uh, he, he looked at them. You know, he, he yeah. saw that they was the, he he fed many black black person in, in the profession, both musician and, and singer. Now that's something else that that as I was as I was reading your book, I guess I also expected to hear a lot more. Uh, Oh, maybe bitterness from you at, at the the racism, the the discrimination, mm. uh, you know, the separate facilities, all these years that you've had to put up with. But I didn't. I don't get the impression that you're bitter. Well, we we, we didn't. I wouldn't. You know, even when I travel in the South, uh, I know that my uh, uh, wife, late wife Gladys, who was very wonderful lady, you know, she was managing the business and managing the band, and she'd always find some places for us to stay comfortable when we was in the South, uh, uh, even in a, in a private home. Uh, and, and and one time in Jackson, Mississippi, we stayed in a white hotel. <laughs> you know, we had no problems, you know what I'm You know, I guess it's the way, it's way you think and the way you believe and the way you carry yourself. Right after this short break, Lionel Hampton reveals the little white lie he told Louis Armstrong. Now back to my 1989 interview with Lionel Hampton. Tell me the story, if you would, about how the vibra harp became the instrument that it is. Well, the Bible Hall became the instrument it is because when I was a kid in Chicago, I, I joined up with Chicago Defender Newspaper Boys Band. And uh, uh, in the band, I played the snare drum, and, and in the concert orchestra, I played the uh, xylophones and the timpanis. And uh, so I had good training uh, from uh, the director who was Major, Major N. Clark Smith. Major N. Clark Smith fame was... Uh, he was a bandmaster for the Theodore Roosevelt Rough Riders. And uh, so he used to teach me extra. Uh, you know, we used to have classes like uh, practice for the band from Monday to Thursday. And after we got out of school at 3.30, uh, uh, we went in and had uh, two hours of rehearsal and, and schooling. And I used to stay after that time and learn Sophia Harmony from... Uh, uh, Major and Clark Smith, and so uh, facial harmony, the German facial harmony. That's a special uh, deal where they do uh, harmony, do music by numbers. 
they do it today. They call it the shilling system, you know. And uh, they have flatted ninths and flatted fifths and mm-hmm. all those things. So I, I, I studied the xylophones and uh, I used to play Porton Pears and William Tell, play all the concert uh, concertos on, on the xylophones. And, uh, and in between, I used to be listening to Louis Armstrong's recording and Coleman Hawkins, and I would take their solos off the record note for note. Uh, you know, and and uh, that was my entrance to jazz. So when we moved to California, I went out there to, to join a band later uh, because uh, the, the, the musicians all like to play with me because I could keep good time on drums. Uh, and they, they called me a metronome. <laughs> <laughs> Louis used to call me a gate. <laughs> I swing like a gate. <laughs> Louis Armstrong I'm talking about. And so when, when I got in California, I got with a band called Les Heights Orchestra, which did an audition to back Louis Armstrong up at, at a place called Frank Sebastian's Cotton Club. It was the end place where all the movie stars came, and it, it was uh, catered to the to white, big white clientele. And uh, so... Uh, when Louis' manager heard us play, he, he said he was going to leave Louis' band in New York and, and that he was going to help us to back Louis up. So Louis liked us so well that he uh, took us to a recording session with him, and we got the recording session. There was a set of vibes sitting in the corner, and they was just using the vibes just as, as a... Uh, as a boom, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the NBC. The, <laughs> the NBC, oh, yeah. That's where right. it went. And so I uh, looked at the vibes, and Louis said, what's that sitting in the corner? And I explained to him that the, it was the vibe of and there was something new added to the the percussion family, and that uh, that uh, is the uh, is offspring from the xylophones, uh, but they had the same keyboard, but one was made out of metal with the vibe, and other the, the, the xylophones made out of wood. And so Louis said, "Can you play it?" And I said, "Yeah, I never played it before <laughs> in my life." And so I got on the. Uh, he said, "Well, pull it out in the middle of the floor." That's the words he said, and play something. And I did pull it, pull it in the middle of the floor, and I played one of his solos that I had taken off the record. They knocked them out completely. He said, well, come on, keep it right out here and, and, and play during this recording session on it. And I did. And the first tune that we played on, on the Vibes was a tune called uh, Memories of You, written by U.B. Blake. And, uh, boy, the rest is history. That's the first time jazz has ever been played on Vibes. You know, when I read, when I read you, the story that you just told in the book, I could just picture his eyes getting wide, the light bulb going on over his head saying, this is great. we got to use this. Yeah, that's what Louis said. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you think back on all the songs, I mean, you have the discography that they've put together in the back of this book is absolutely stunning. When you think back on all the songs that you've recorded, I can't begin to ask you your favorites because that's like asking you which are your favorite children, but yeah. are, there, are there some songs that stand out in your, in your mind as, boy, that's Lionel Hampton? Well, uh, yeah. Well, I, I made a record one time, uh, Stardust, I didn't know it was being recorded. It was for Gene Norman. Uh, he was a disc jockey in Los Angeles, California, and uh, he gave concerts uh, in between, and this concert he had this time was in Pasadena, California, at the big auditorium there. And um, 
it happened that uh, uh, it was someone else supposed to play and they didn't come. And so I was out there doing a picture with uh, with Danny Kay mm. and, and uh, Louis, Louis Armstrong and Benny Goodman, Tommy Dorsey, uh, Charlie Barnett, and myself. I was in the picture too. And so uh, uh, he came and said he wanted me to, to fill in this spot. Well, um, uh, the, the studio said it was all right, but they couldn't move my vibes because they had the vibes marked, so it had to be the same place where it was yesterday. It had to be the same place today. So um, so they bought me some vibes. And uh, and I came in that night, and we started playing Stardust. Yeah, I also confess to my surprise that when we hear so many black leaders today saying how what how what a racist administration the Reagan administration was, how bad it was for America's blacks, and yet you were one of Mr. Reagan's strong supporters. You support you're good friends with Mr. Bush. Um, what do you know that they don't know? Well, I tell you, I, I asked the president Reagan about that one time. I said, you know, the the, the black leadership said they, they they can't get next to you, they can't talk to you. He said, they, they don't come and ask me anything. That's like, just like that. He said, I, I was wondering why they never tried to make, make a, a, a session with me. And, and we, we talked. He said, they never did. I remember the late Walter White, uh, who was here at NWACP, he was saying that he, he had a problem that he wanted to get the, the Supreme Court decision in front of the Supreme Court about the black schooling, you know, at that time. And he said uh, he picked up the phone and called President Eisenhower, and I, President Eisenhower told him to come right down, and they would talk it over, and he did. And uh, President Eisenhower uh, uh, called the Supreme Court justice and said, I'd like to have this case docked. So we so we can get it on 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 the on the document, and uh, so uh, he did, and, and that's a case where Walter White didn't stand back. He just went up and said, "I'm going to, uh, going to talk to the president," and, and President uh, uh, Reagan seemed to think that uh, a lot of the leadership stayed away from him. He said uh, it, it, it was political. He said the other side, the fence wanted to be that way. <laughs> And I could believe that because uh, I knew knew President Reagan for a long time in California uh, when he was governor, you know, and uh, he he had black people on his staff, you know, and, and uh, blacks had a lot of a lot of good jobs in in, in, uh, in Sacramento, and we know that uh, Nixon, uh, President Nixon, uh, we was, we was good friends, and and he 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 made it possible that Harvard University here got a big endowment to, to carry along their uh, uh, their education further, and, uh, and and look at George Bush, George Bush is is, is helping. Uh, the blacks out. Uh, he's making their meetings. He open have open house. He, he talks to them and try to help them. You know, but, but you can't make it just one side. You got to you got to meet together and uh, and say, well, well, we're gonna work this thing out. Let's let's work it out. Let's see what's the best advantage for us to work it out for both sides. Let's don't have it don't have it just one side. Lionel Hampton died in two thousand two. He was 94. And you can find easy Amazon links to Lionel Hampton's book at our website, HeardEverything.com. Are you new to Now I've Heard Everything? Well, thanks for finding us, and thanks for listening. We post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, my 1994 interview with another great musician, one of the great country musicians of our time, 
Glenn Campbell. Elvis was teasing me. He said, somebody sent me a record you did, and you was trying to sound like me. I said, I wasn't trying to sound like Elvis. I said, I was sounding like you. You just don't hear it that way. (laughs) (laughs) That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.